0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy, I hope you're staying happy, and I hope that you're staying safe. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to meet John Doerr. You know him, he's a comedian, he's been on television loads. He has a new television show coming out called Humor Resources on CBC. It starts on January 5th. And that's right, I said Humor Resources. He plays a comic turned human resources manager. And the idea is that he sits down with comedians like Sarah Silver and Tom Green, Eric Andre, Reggie Watts, Nikki Glaser, the list goes on and on, and assesses them as an HR manager. He asks them questions like, what value do you bring to stand-up comedy, and all sorts of things. It's a very funny show and we'll tell you all about it a little bit later on. First up though, my first guest is Gastronaut, artist, and 8-time Guinness World Record holder Bob Bloomer. He's the creator and host of the television series Surreal Gourmet and Glutton for Punishment and a producer and host of the world's weirdest restaurants. His shows air on various networks in over 20 countries worldwide. He's also the author of seven cookbooks, including the most recent, Flavor Bomb, A Rogue Guide to Making Everything Taste Better, a book that he hopes will make you a better cook. He joins me live from his home in Los Angeles via Zoom, and I began by asking him, how important was food to you growing up? This is what he had to say. I
1: have such an unusual backstory about that because I was such a fussy eater and I, from like the age of 12 to 16, I think I lived on nothing but iceberg lettuce and tomato sandwiches on white toast with just butter. And 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 my mother would like make something for everybody and then she would make me shake and bake chicken. And so I grew up not really having a, an affinity for food and and thinking that my mother wasn't really a very good cook because that was my, prism for seeing what she cooked but it turned out after the fact family friends have told me that she was actually a really adventurous cook and was making things like curries back in the way back when Um, and uh, I was just really unaware of it so it was only when I got to college and I started eating you know I'd call my mother and go hey this broccoli stuff not so bad after all (laughs) And, and my palate evolved
0: were you on a, a food plan and if you were going to eat anything, you were just gonna eat what they put in front of you and that made you adventurous? Um You
1: know, I can't really put my finger on on that. Uh, it was just a slow burn. And right. and um I did start I did start to learn how to cook when I moved into my first apartment and had a roommate and it was like someone's gonna cook and someone's gonna clean. Mm-hmm. Um but I I can't really put my finger on any epiphanies. It was just a really slow burn. If anything, it's when I discovered that, you know, the best way to a woman's heart is through cooking, and I started cooking for dates. And But again, even that, a slow evolution, to the point where I'm still learning about tons of different foods and flavors to this day.
0: Well, that's part of the, the focus here of Flavor Bomb is to take – Uh, new and exciting ideas to home cooks. So as you say earlier, sometimes you get stuck in a rut. We're just going to have the same thing over and over again. Flavor Bomb uh, gives you options to how to spice up meals that perhaps uh, you're familiar with. What do you think uh, is interesting for home cooks these days? There's got to be a new trend or something that people are using at home. What do you think it is? Is it something that's in the book or is there something you're suggesting in the book that might uh, really spark up people's uh, imaginations?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, um, what I'm really doing in Flavor Bomb is helping people take ingredients that they're already using and mm-hmm. coax more flavor out of them through the tricks and the tips and hacks and techniques that I've learned from eating my way around the globe for the last 30 years but everything I told you was basically um, that part of my life where I wasn't that into food Mm -hmm. was until my mid-20s and ever since then I've actually been traveling the globe you know and eating professionally and uh, hanging out at uh, you know hawker stalls in Singapore and working with gumbo champions for my show in uh, Louisiana and working alongside some pretty impressive, you know, fancy pants, French chefs. And so I've gleaned all this information on all these little tricks that that they use. Some are just simple tricks. Some are techniques. Some are hacks. But it's all these things that you can do to take the ingredients you already have in your same kitchen. I mean, my kitchen in my kitchen, my stove is older than I am. It's just an old O'Keeffe and Merritt stove. And so it's really about building layers of flavor and texture from the things you already have. And it's a, the whole goal of the book is just to make you a better cook and make everything you, take, you make taste better. Um, so in answer to your question, um, I'll give you two, uh, two techniques that can make a big difference. Sure. One it is available to everybody because all it involves is heat. And the other involves a fancy tool that's not that fancy. So the uh, the first one is caramelization. So for example, if you have a head of cauliflower and you were to just steam it or uh, cook it quickly, uh, it would still be kind of vegetal. And I mean, it might be nice. You might put it in a wok and cook it and whatnot. But if you roast that cauliflower at a super high temperature, the natural sugars that are in cauliflower, just like in lots of other uh, vegetables. Um, And those natural sugars, when you just cook it quickly, just lay dormant, nothing happens to them. But when you cook it for say an hour over a high heat, say 425 degrees Fahrenheit, those natural sugars caramelize. That means they brown, they give you that nice crust. They add so many different layers and dimensions of flavor. And those flavors were all sitting in that head of cauliflower, just waiting Crying out for some heat, and um, and so that's a technique that can that allows you to transform something with nothing other than heat.
0: You're listening to my interview with Bob Bloomer. Find his book Flavor Bomb wherever fine cookbooks are sold.
1: Another technique that's become very popular in the last few years is called sous vide, and that's where you uh, you cook something in a water bath. And basically, the, the tool that you buy, which is a sous vide maker, it's really just like a wand. You put it in the water. It heats the water up to an exact temperature. And um, so, for example, if you're making a steak on the grill, you'll take a big honking steak. You put it on the grill, which is four or 500 degrees in temperature. And um, it's a guessing game to figure out when the internal temperature of the steak Uh, if you like a medium rare steak, the internal temperature you're shooting for is 135 degrees roughly. And uh, so you're, you know, you're putting it on the grill, you're flipping it, you're whatever, you're poking it, you are maybe cutting it, you take it off. It still continues to cook when it's come off. And you're hoping to get that nice pink 135 degrees. Um, Whereas with a water bath and sous vide, you put the steak in a water bath that's exactly 135 degrees you leave it there for a few hours until it rises to that temperature. If you get a phone call and talk for an hour and the steak is in the water bath at 135 degrees, it still can't go any higher in temperature because the water surrounding it's 135 degrees. Therefore, it will still be that perfect pink medium rare. And, um, and then there's a the last step where you crust it, but that's, that's just a, a one final little step. Um, so that's an interesting technique for making the perfect steak.
0: And is it something that's easy to do at home? I've only ever seen sous vide machines in restaurants or uh, on cooking shows. And it looks like a piece of equipment. Is there? Is it easy to do at home? Yeah, it's super easy now. And you
1: know what? In the last five years, the game has completely changed. Because five years ago, if you wanted to buy a sous vide maker, you'd get this big plastic square tub. Uh and at one end of it would be the sous vide maker, maybe in a box or whatever. You'd have to fill a whole tub up with water, wait till it got to temp, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that cost like four or five hundred bucks. Now for under $200, you get something that looks like, a, um, well, it's like a magic wand. Basically, it's uh, the size of a, an aerosol can of spray. And uh, you Put the water, you just take any existing pot that you have, like a pasta pot, you fill it with water, put this sous vide maker in it, and then you take your steak and either just put it in a plastic bag and put it in the water, or if you have a crayabacker, you know, like a food saver, uh, which sucks out all the water and that's a little more ideal, um, you use that and you just drop it in. Most of these things, I mean, the, the sous vide maker I use, which is called Jewel, Joule, J O U L E, has a it, it connects to your phone and it just, it's basically foolproof.
0: It, it strikes me that the only difference here in terms of, of adding extra flavor and the, some of these techniques and hacks is time. You just have to plan ahead a little bit. If you're gonna roast a cauliflower, it probably has to be in there for 40 minutes. So you just start thinking ahead. Is that the idea?
1: Um, in some cases, I mean, in other cases, let's take, for example, my puttanesca pasta. Um, It's not time at all it's my pasta takes exactly the same time as anybody else's pasta There's just a few little steps that I add along the way. So for example um, When I'm uh, adding garlic, I'll add two-thirds of the garlic in the beginning But I'll hold some back to the end because I want my punta pasta to have Big flavor big bold flavor and bite so if you cook all your garlic in the beginning in the pan the flavors soften up. You want to have a little bite left at the very end, you toss in a little bit of the um, the minced garlic and that'll kick it up. Um, I like to finish my puttanesca with some uh, fried breadcrumbs, which I, I make and I just, you know, I make them once a month and just keep them in my fridge. Um, uh when i'm using when i take out the anchovies anchovies if you take them from a little tin come with oil they're stored in oil that oil has tons of flavor anchovy flavor because it's been sitting on anchovies for maybe a year or so so i add a bit of that oil that gooses up the flavors a bit so just a bunch of little steps a lot of the time it's just tiny little steps uh and it's sort of the equivalent the culinary equivalent of death by a thousand cuts it's um it's increasing the flavor profile of a dish by just lots of little things. But those little things that you're doing along the way that don't take any more time or effort uh, can make a huge difference in the flavor of your dish.
0: Bobby Flay told me one time that he uses probably 60% more salt, six zero percent more salt in his food than you would at home. Um, is that a hack or is that just something that you would expect from restaurant cooking, something that you shouldn't have all the time?
1: Yeah, you know, restaurant chefs rely on a few things that aren't necessarily the healthiest. But when you go out to a restaurant, all you're thinking about is flavor. So they're going to take a lot of shortcuts to get you big flavor. Um, I mean, the most famous example of that is uh, 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 Joel Robuchon's mashed potatoes, and uh, they and I think I'm a, I'm I think he's the correct Michelin star chef that I'm. Referring to. Uh, anyways, it's basically uh, a few potatoes, a ton of butter, a ton of cream, to the point where really the potatoes are just holding the butter and cream together. <laughs> but you taste those and you go, oh my God, these are the best mashed potatoes I've ever had in my life. Well, yeah, but you can get a lot of big flavor in lots of other ways. So, no, I you know, i use salt. I talk a lot about how to salt things and how to get the right level of salt, but I'm not leaning on salt and I'm most definitely not leaning on butter to get my flavors. Things Here's some examples of things that are almost zero calories. Um, uh, citrus juice and citrus zest. So here's a really, really easy example. Uh, in the morning, I love to have granola. So I, I take my granola, whether I've made it myself or I bought it, um, some plain yogurt. And then I love to take uh, an orange and just zest the the outer peel and that orange zest when you add that to to yogurt uh, along with your granola just it it, um, it adds a, a level of brightness and freshness um, as a bonus it's free because you bought the orange to eat the orange, and you're getting the rind which delivers the zest um, so that's one example. You know, uh, chefs, professional chefs use an awful lot of uh, lemon juice and vinegar in their cooking. They're if the, probably the biggest thing that separates home cooks from professional chefs is their constant desire to balance what they call the acid level of a dish, um, and so they do that with lemon juice or uh, vinegar for the most part. There's lots of other ways, but um, and so the the average home cook will make soup and they'll go, oh, this tastes great. Uh, A restaurant chef will taste it and goes, needs more acid. And they'll Mm. squeeze a little bit of lemon in at the end or lime or whatever. So that's one thing. Fresh herbs. I always have fresh um, parsley, uh, cilantro, and maybe mint in my fridge. I like to have a bunch of all of those. And um, whether I'm making scrambled eggs or a salad or sauteing some mushrooms for something, I'm always adding fresh herbs at the end. And that also adds brightness and a whole different layer of flavor to your dish. Super, super inexpensive. And um, like the, the citrus, virtually no calories, right? The uh, same can be said about the last three things I mentioned in this little diatribe. Uh, garlic, ginger, and shallots, right, as a foundation for a lot of things that you're sauteing. And they give you tremendous flavor and also virtually no calories.
0: You're listening to my interview with Bob Bloomer, author of the cookbook, Flavor Bomb. You can find it wherever fine books are sold. I've often thought that if I was invited to be a judge on a cooking show, I have three things that I would say. First, you talk about balance. I'd I'd like a little bit more acid for balance is something that always comes up. Uh, 10 more seconds under the salamander would have improved this. And uh, I think it could have used a pinch of salt. That's, those are the three things that I think you need to be able to, to riff off the top of your head to bluff your way through being a cooking show judge. That's what yeah. I would do anyway.
1: That's, I think that's excellent advice to any aspiring cooking show judges. Um, you know, I, um, uh, there used to be a show in Canada called uh, Cook Like a Chef. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I wanted to riff off that and do a little segment called look like a chef, because there are many things that chefs do, the way they salt things with that little yep. sort of, zzz, you know, it's almost like they're putting um, uh, magic dust on something. Uh, <laughs> the way they drizzle olive oil, yeah. the, the way they flip things in a pan. So that's that's the look like a chef. You don't necessarily have to know what you're doing or add any real flavor, but it looks like you're in control.
0: How do you research a book uh, like Flavor Bomb in terms of, of the recipes? Do you have these recipes? Do you have friends over? Do you, uh, how does it work? Do, the, you have to road test all of this.
1: For sure. But here's the funny little thing about writing a book. And this is my seventh book. Sometimes you write the book and sometimes the book writes itself. And often you'll start um, with one premise. And as you sit down to start to write it, it will take you in a whole different direction. So I'll come, to, I'll come back to the recipes in a second, but this book was supposed to be big, bold recipes based on the fact that people come to my house and they go, how come your food tastes different than mine does, even when I'm making the same thing? And so I thought, well, I'm going to talk about how to you know, create these recipes that are big and bold. And, uh, and then I thought as an addendum, I'd talk a little bit about some of the gear and some of the techniques that you can use to extract these flavors. And as I started to write that, that section became bigger and bigger and more involved. And I kept thinking of other things I'd learned from my travels and lessons I'd learned, um, again, from like street food vendors or something that a gumbo champion told me. And, um, it got to the point where my editor, as I was developing the book said, you know, this really should be the first half of the book, not a little addendum at the back. And, and to me, the book is really about how to make everything taste better. And then the recipes are the bonus. Like the book is the school, the first half is the school end, and the recipes are the bonus. To answer your question, yes, I test and retest and invite friends over and ask friends to make the recipes and tell me how it worked out for them. And I spent an awful lot of time trying to make my recipes very clear, very linear. and um, And I try to, take away all of the guesswork
0: (laughs) Uh,
1: and, and nothing's more frustrating than trying to make a recipe and and being confused by what you're supposed to do. I, my, voice, my voice cracked because it hurts me so much. To be confused by the directions in a recipe is unfair because already you're taking on a big challenge. You know, you shouldn't have to be interpreting things as well.
0: In just a few minutes, John Doerr joins us to talk about his new show, Humor Resources. It debuts on CBC on January 5th. Before we get to John, though, one more question for Bob Bloomer, author of Flavor Bomb. He's a Canadian living in the United States. States. So I wondered if there's a food from Canada that he misses.
1: There's Canadian foods that I miss because of COVID because I can't get them. But uh, despite the fact that I've lived in the same house under the D of the Hollywood sign for the last <laughs> 31 years, um, I'm in Canada all the time and, and traveling to all, to all the corners of the country as many corners as there may be. Um, And uh, and so I do, you know, I get my bagels, I get my candied salmon. Um, I've had the good fortune of going out to Newfoundland um, every year for like the last eight years. And so, you know, I'll hang out with Jeremy Charles, one of the great Canadian chefs who's like, you know, picking uh, oyster, what's it called? There's a green that he finds on, on the shore that when you taste it, tastes like oysters, and and he's always foraging for things and you know putting them together in really amazingly creative ways, um, so uh, you know and then of course who can forget poutine and whatnot, but um, uh, so there are things that I miss now, but mostly I'm I'm the one who's chasing down all those crazy ingredients and and old classics when I'm in Canada.
0: Bob Bloomer's book, Flavor Bomb, is available wherever you buy fine cookbooks. Now let's meet John Doerr. He's the host of a new television comedy series called Humor Resources. Starts on CBC on January 5th. He plays a retired comedian turned human resources manager who has to assess comedians like Sarah Silverman, Tom Green, Eric Andre. It's a very funny show. So I asked him, where'd you get the idea?
2: The initial the initial concept existed prior to the pandemic uh, in a different format. I imagined uh, doing a short form digital aspect of this show. So uh, for people, obviously most people who have not seen it, uh, it was going to be me interviewing comedians as their HR manager, <laughs> uh, which I think is a ridiculous concept, of course, to bring uh, the, to be the liaison between uh, employees, the comedians in the business of comedy. Uh, And to bring them all together into a place where no one will ever be offended and where words matter and we're all sensitive. Um, You know, that's an idealistic place that can't exist. But me trying to hold people accountable to that standard, I thought would be funny. Then we got into uh, this COVID world and um, we thought, uh, how do we pitch this to the CBC who had just lost uh, the Olympics and uh, their hockey programming was unknown? Um, so, yeah, they were ready to hear a concept that could be shot in, safely in a pandemic, so I mean, this is a whole conversation we could get into if you like, but we don 't have to, but shipping cameras around and you know camera assistance in PPE gear and uh, everywhere from St. Louis to Los Angeles to New York to Alaska to Canada, Toronto, Vancouver. Uh, That was a whole process. But so the show itself now was what is life like in a pandemic? Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only the complications, technically how to shoot it, but uh, how does someone like me work from home, uh, uh, co-parenting a child? Uh, What's my, what are the pressures that go along with my relationship? And then how do you work from home? And uh, so we tried to explore that in the storyline that connects the interviews themselves.
0: Well, let's step away from the show for just a sec and talk about the real life, John. So what happens during the pandemic? You're a stand-up comic. Uh, You have TV shows. You've got a couple of TV shows. But I would imagine that uh, the good chunk of your time is spent standing in front of an audience. And so in March, when all of this flipped on its head, uh, what happened in your life then?
2: Uh, Well, yeah. So I'm not pretending that I'm unique in any way, but I will be selfish and say, yeah, the rug got pulled out from underneath me. I know it got pulled out from everyone. But uh, yeah, I had just moved up to Alaska um, as recently as a few months prior. Uh, I'd met a, a wonderful woman who I now live with and her daughter. And uh, so I moved. I spent a lot of money moving up to uh, Alaska. I was uh, getting ready to pay some taxes and uh, had a great April planned. And then the rug got pulled out from underneath me. So yeah, financially, I was, I was hit hard. Um, and yeah, was not able to go out on the road and provide. And I uh, was completely unsure where I was going to uh, make my money. Um, so that's what was going on with me at the time um and then yeah this CBC opportunity came along and i won't lie to you uh, uh i'm very happy that it did but that's <laughs> what was happening with me yeah
0: and Ala- are you in alaska right now as we speak
2: Right now I'm in Palm Springs. We, Palm Springs. Uh, we rented a home for a couple of weeks uh, to get away and to just isolate here
0: and swim. You're listening to my interview with John Doerr, star of the television show Humor Resources. Well, let's talk then uh, a little bit more about the show. I love the idea of this show the idea of an HR manager speaking to uh comedians particularly I think because a lot of the uh, things that are swirling around the the comedy world before the pandemic and I'm sure during is about cancel culture it's about being afraid to say certain things uh on on stage in front of an audience lest you offend somebody uh, but this show kind of tackles all that stuff directly you ask questions uh to these comedians like what does accountability mean to you as a comedian? And it sounds like, a, a, like it's, it's a very serious thing. And accountability is a very serious thing. But in the context of the show, you're playing it for laughs. But it, there is an undercurrent of truth here, right?
2: There is an undercurrent of truth. We're stretching it. I think that, uh, yeah, stand-up comedy forever has been a place in my experience and I think in other people's experience, although I won't want to speak for everyone. uh, But uh, yeah, I think it is a place where you get to play and learn. Um, and you used to make mistakes and you'd be corrected either by other comedians or the audience would tell you that's offensive or incorrect. And then you'd adjust as you learned and then you'd perfect material. Now, I think we live in a hyper alert state where, you know, people are capturing things on cell phones and uh, are reacting um, to a work in progress. Um, So I think, yeah, that's i'm not saying that uh their concerns are are wrong it's just i think uh you know the underground comedy club in the basement where you could explore your space and figure out how to say things and learn from your mistakes um doesn't seem like it exists anymore it's almost like you have to be perfect before you even get on stage and uh yeah i think that was more where i came in was you know, an HR manager trying to put a business corporate filter on people's creative thoughts uh, is just an opportunity for fun. Like, before you say it, I'll, I'll make sure you're correct so you do not get canceled.
0: <laughs> Has it changed the way uh, that you perform? Uh, are, are you nervous about saying things now? Or, I mean, uh, some of the comics that you've had on the show have just said, yeah, I'm not accountable. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I don't feel that I owe anyone an apology for a joke. Uh, where do you fall on that scale?
2: That's it. I know you're talking about Ronnie Chang. That's um, right. Exactly. Um, yes. yeah. I love Ronnie Chang so much. Uh, I've known Ronnie for a long time. He is uh, one of the first people we went after. Um, how, where do I fall there? Um, I'm definitely, um, you know, I want to be, I think intentions matter. Um mm-hmm and this is an argument people have had in, you know, in public many times now. Um, and I'm worried that the the outcome is shifting all the time. So if the outcome is the most important thing, but that's always shifting, then at some point intentions have to matter again. Um, so I firmly stick behind, uh, I intended to do this, and if I am going to, use um you know uh, inappropriate descriptions i hope people know i'm doing it in to point out that it's incorrect to do so and i should be held accountable i'm common i want i want to be able to comment without being held ac- accountable accountability well, just- such an important thing and you do have to be accountable and um it, it's just i think you are allowed to also comment on we are uh hypersensitive to uh people not being accountable if that right. makes any sense.
0: Yeah, no, does I, that make I sense.
2: Okay. Well, it does make sense.
0: It makes a little bit of sense. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? Okay, call me on it, because I will be I will explain it better. Okay. I do think that okay. I think that um uh I think we, we should be allowed to comment on the fact that we are being sensitive and that words are changing. Um, so I don't think that conversation that's happening in public is something we need to completely steer away from. I don't think we need to absorb all the new words and use them correctly. I think we should be able to comment on, this is a new culture and, uh, we should be able to comment on culture.
0: Well, comics, I think the job of a comic is to look at what's happening in culture and, and be the, the, the one that says something that's not always popular as long as it's funny. I think you can, you've got some leeway uh, to get away with stuff. Well, I, possibly.
2: that could be problematic as well. Um, I, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, funny is important, but at what cost? Because some people might argue that uh, you could be reinforcing a stereotype, and if you're not aware of it or you're not being accountable, um, that could have harmful ramifications in the future. So how important are the words we use now? Um, and are you contributing to a culture that's problematic in the future? The fact that this is you know, being discussed in public is the whole reason why we wanted to make a show like this. Right.
0: And mm-hmm. the the list of comedians is uh, uh, really great. Sarah Silverman, Tom Green, Eric Andre. Uh, there's a guy that pushes an envelope. Uh, Reggie Watts, Nikki Glazer, the Lucas Brothers, Aisha Brown, Scott Thompson. Uh, tell me, do you, uh, or how did you, Put this cast together how did you uh, approach everyone with the idea for this show
2: well a lot of a lot a lot of reasons um I definitely called in some favors um for not I don't, don't want to call them favors but like I have a relationship and a friendship with some of these people and it helps to get Nikki Glazer and Sarah Silverman and Reggie and yeah. Eric Andre on the show um you know just for uh people who know their names and want to tune in um, and then a lot of people are just represent a diverse point of view. Um, we have a, a variety of people with different perspectives that can talk about uh, gender, race, um, inclusivity, um, and, and can touch on these topics. Um, not that that's our focus, but uh, we definitely wanted you know, people who could speak based on their own experience. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of calling in and favors and asking people to be a part of the show. And uh, yeah, they were very willing and they let a, an assistant camera operator enter their home during a pandemic and, you know, set the focus. So yeah, they were brave
0: souls. They were. It would have been easy, I suppose, to do this via Zoom or via whatever people are using now, uh, but it wouldn't have felt the same, I guess. It wouldn't have looked as good.
2: We couldn't, there's no way we could broadcast that quality. You'd be relying on someone's, you know, weak um, uh, internet signal, uh, the Zoom quality, as handsome as you are now, Richard, and as beautiful as I am. Uh, not all of us have this kind of connection. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, and Adam Brody and Dave Derlaney, the directors who I've worked with for years now, uh, do not tolerate anything but excellence. And without them, we wouldn't have a show that you know, in my opinion, looks as good as it does. So, um, yeah, we couldn't do it through zoom. It would be unreliable. Uh, we couldn't edit it. Um, we, we would have to, we wouldn't be able to adjust the exposure. We'd lose focus. Um, yeah, we, we, we needed to have this done professionally and properly.
0: Now, you ask questions of people in your role on the show as an HR person. Uh, Things like, uh, do you bring value to stand-up comedy? Uh, If a joke of yours offends a customer, do you feel accountable for giving them an apology? We talked about that a little bit. What group of people do you think it's okay to discriminate against? So you're asking questions like this uh, to comics. Now, were the comics aware of what you were going to ask them or are we seeing something that's been scripted or are we seeing something that's a little bit more off the cuff?
2: No, they, they didn't know. The, the only thing we sent them to get them in the, 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 the the only thing we sent them to get them thinking about being in an HR interview uh, were sam- a sample of five general questions. Um, and they were essentially, what two words do you think your fellow employees would use to describe you? We just wanted to get them thinking that way. Um, however, no, everything, nothing was scripted. Uh, we we hired a researcher, Saskia, who was unbelievable. She created case files on every single one of our interviews, uh, and then our team of writers, Arthur, Samian, Rebecca, Kohler, myself, Adam, and Dave, um, we combed through the research and we we created case files and we tried to we tried to treat these employees as if they were in an HR meeting. Uh, nothing was scripted, and the best parts that are hard to capture are when they really are surprised at the work we put into it because we would bring, anticipating that they may have a question based on an accusation I would make, we would bring up data that supports my accusation. You're
0: listening to my interview with John Doerr, star of Human Resources on CBC television.
2: And We had laugh per minute graphs, Uh, we had transcripts of their performance performances Um, so we would share these things with them and uh, yeah strangely I feel like I wish the audience could see the full hour and a half interview instead of the five minutes we got distilled down to because you would see Tom Green who was really disappointed about him not performing an audio check correctly when we called him on it he was actually quite disappointed
0: yeah with Nikki Glazer in that interview yeah yeah well yeah that was the other part we
2: not only was there a genuine customer comment uh, asking why the audio was bad that he feels horrible about, by the way. But uh we also went as far as to get it, uh, get Nikki to go on record as saying he did not perform an audio check, which, you know, in real time, Tom was very, very disappointed that we went to those lengths, but it doesn't appear that way in the show.
0: It's funny when you see uh, Ronnie uh, confronted with the fact that he had, um, Suggested that people download movies illegally and then you throw some facts and figures at him about uh, how pirating had gone up after his, after his uh, routine uh, was aired. Uh, very funny. And again, something oh, just a little bit unexpected.
2: That, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's an even better example, actually, because we were able to predict Ronnie, me knowing Ronnie as well as I do, we were able to predict where he was gonna go, which was, you shouldn't be joking about this, him denying it and saying we wanna see figures, and we would show him figures. And then beyond that, we'd even show customers uh, saying, thanks for introducing me to BitTorrent, which yeah. of course takes money out of the pockets of fellow employees. That's a great example. Yeah, Ronnie, uh, yeah, Ronnie fell for it
0: hook, line and sinker and pushed back appropriately too. Were you surprised by any of the responses that you received from the HR questions to the comics?
2: Mm. Uh, Hmm. I mean, I was more disappointed in how I would ask things. I mean, if we were to do a season two, I think I would load the questions with a little bit more preparation and sincerity uh we i think we just got overwhelmed with the number of interviews um so yeah a few times the things fell flat and it had nothing to do with the comedian it would it had everything to do with the work we put into asking the question um so nothing disappointing Uh, are you asking like as if i were a genuine hr manager would i be disappointed that they responded in a certain way or just the process of the show
0: i I think just being surprised that when you confront ronnie chang for instance and uh he has that well no i don't care about the people that uh, may be offended were you ever shocked by a response that you got from someone
2: no not at all i think everyone was who they, like who i thought they would be like reggie watts was this uh you know, this cosmic, strange, you know, interview who I, who my character would never really understand. Uh, Eric was going Eric Andre was going to give us lots of pushback, which he did. He's a problematic employee. <laughs> um, and then yeah, Ronnie Chang, I know does not suffer fools and, uh, he, he stands behind everything he says. So, uh, uh, no, I was never surprised. If anything, I was uh, I was overjoyed. I think it was just a really fun process, and to just connect with friends and comedians and work in a pandemic was refreshing and fun.
0: One last question, sure. If there was anyone, kind of living or dead, that you could have on this show, who would it be? Like Lenny Bruce would be amazing. Who would oh. it be?
2: You know the tough part is like because now we're blurring the line between people who would be willing to play along yeah. and make it interesting versus who could I actually sit down and talk to and in interview. Oh, I'll just be honest with you, Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. Yeah. Why
0: not? I mean, yeah, he he would be incredible in this sort of thing.
2: I mean, the best, the best. Strategic Grill Locations, greatest album ever.
0: Well, John, thanks so much. Congratulations on the show.
2: Well, a I'm pleasure to meet a Pleasure to meet you as well. Um, yeah, I've uh, watched and listened for a long time. So yeah, yeah, nice to meet you.
0: That was my interview with John Doerr. If you're a comedy fan, you'll want to check out his new show. It's called Humor Resources. It starts on January 5th on CBC. There's six episodes. He plays a human resources guy interviewing comedians. It's off the cuff. It's very funny. Uh, Check it out. I think you'll really like it.
2: Ronnie, I just want to make sure that you're being accountable for your behavior on and off stage. You're always representing the world of comedy. We'll talk again soon.
0: That sounds... Terrible, to be honest. So, my thanks to John Doerr for stopping by. Also, to Bob Bloomer. Uh, His book is called Flavor Bomb A Rogue Guide to Making Everything Taste Better. And I love what it says here on the press release. It's about developing the courage to season with wild abandon, brown your food to within an inch of its life, double down on the ingredients that can increase the pleasure factor, and taste and adjust on the fly. It's a step-by-step look at how to create great food with stuff you probably already have in the pantry and you're just not using properly. It's what every home cook needs. Bob Bloomer, always entertaining, always informative. Uh, My thanks to him for stopping by.
1: Always happy to talk about anything, frankly.
0: Most of all, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy. I hope you're staying safe. And I hope you're staying healthy. We'll talk again soon.